0: So last Sunday morning we started uh, a three-week series, we're in the middle today, of looking through three different lenses at um, the ways in which study of Scripture together um, as a kind of long uh, commercial message for our small groups during Lent, the way studying Scripture together informs uh, our life in Christ, our individual life in Christ of discipleship, but also our communal life in Christ in the family of faith and then, uh, thirdly, the ways in which we carry ourselves out into the world uh, in lives of generosity and service, lives of compassion and uh, care. So, last week we looked at the Christ centered part of our lives of discipleship, informed through studying Scripture together. We remembered together that whoever or whatever it is that we spend time with in our lives, is what by default becomes the center of our lives. Therefore, if we claim, if we aspire to be Christ-centered, we have to spend time with Christ. There's no uh, other formula to get from here to there. And we spend time with Christ in large part through our study of Scripture that tells us the story of God come incarnate and made flesh among us in the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the ways that he teaches and leads us, and even in his death and resurrection, opening up the way for us to both abundant and eternal life. Knowing that there are a lot of other things in our lives that compete for being at the center of our lives, and we have to be intentional in making those choices. So today, then, we look at the next, or through, I should say, the next lens, what it means to think about our communal life together in the family of faith, and perhaps, without hyperbole, to consider that our life in community together should be prioritized as if our lives depend on it. Because it turns out that they do. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. But we begin as we always do in Scripture. I'll read a few verses today from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. His first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 I'll start at verse 4, but I'll jump around to catch a few pieces. It's worth noting that uh, I encourage you to take time this week to read all of chapter 12. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff there. And and really, chapter 13 is kind of a response to chapter 12. So you might read chapter 12 and 13 this week. But I'll start today at verse 4. Paul writes, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And... There are varieties of services, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who activates all of them and everyone. To each, to each of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the discernment of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one just as the Spirit chooses. For... Just as the body is one and has many members, all of the members of the one body, though many, are one body. And that's the way it is with Christ. For in the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, all made to drink of the one Spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but many. For example, Paul writes, if the foot were to say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Skipping ahead to verse 27. Now you, Paul writes, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of Tongues, are all prophets, or all prophets, or uh, apostles, or all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret, Paul asks, but strive for the greater gifts? And he concludes, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, for you alone are our rock and our Redeemer, and let all God's people say, Amen. I love this analogy of Paul. I think he's trying to be funny here. Though, in fairness, in our English translation of the original Greek New Testament, We so often lose uh, tone and voice uh, in the text, and so uh, we can only imagine. But I happen to think that Paul has uh, a rather sly, maybe dry sense of humor. We find it uh, throughout Paul's letters, actually. In fact, he often opens his letters with what I think is a particular strategic way of using humor. If we go back to the beginning of this letter, 1 Corinthians... Paul's opening words to them say this, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful opening to a letter? We should be so eloquent. Then, Paul continues, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way, Paul writes, you have been enriched by him in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you so that you are not lacking any spiritual gifts. Except what we realize quickly is that Paul is laying it on thick here, praising them for the grace of Christ made so evident among them that they are filled with the grace of Christ in their speech and knowledge of every kind, not lacking in any spiritual gift. Because he's just about to launch into all of the challenges that he knows exist in that church. In fact, the very many ways that they are failing to live up to the kind of people that would demonstrate that they have the speech and knowledge of the very Lord Jesus Christ. He continues just a few verses later, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all should be in agreement, that there should be no divisions among you, but that you should be united in the same mind and same purpose. For it's been reported to me, Paul says, by Chloe's people... I'm not sure who these tattletales are, Chloe's people. That, Paul writes, there are quarrels among you. And then he begins to launch in in this letter. The strategy that Paul employs here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians kind of reminds me of one of those opening scenes from the 1960s classic, The Sound of Music. Maybe you remember, it's Maria who has flunked out of being a nun who gets sent on to be the governess for the Von Trapp children, children who have a long reputation for scaring off, driving out governesses by their ill behavior? And in kind, Maria shows up only to discover on the first day that the children have put a toad in her pocket, which freaks her out. She throws it across the room and the toad hops away. The children are delighted. But that night, at the dining room table, Maria turns the tables on the children. And what does she do? She doesn't call them out for their ill behavior. Instead, she thanks them for the kind and thoughtful gift they left in her pocket to make her first moments in the house so warm. It's genius, isn't it? And she does it without even a hint of sarcasm. The children squirm as they realize that they are being praised for the kind of choices that they should aspire to, but they clearly are struggling to attain. And in a similar way, I think that's what Paul is doing here in Corinthians. He's praising this young church. They're enriched, he says, by Christ Jesus in speech and in knowledge, he says, knowledge of every kind, not lacking in any spiritual gifts, and I have to think the Corinthians are reading this letter squirming with a kind of pit in their stomach. Oh yeah, they're thinking, that's, that's who we're supposed to be. That's who we're called to be, but that's, that's who we still struggle to be. And it wasn't just this visions over spiritual identity or spiritual gifts that were dividing this young community We'll discover as the letter goes on that they were having arguments over sexuality, they were filing lawsuits against one another, arguing over and even abusing the communal meal together, and the list goes on and on. Paul has got his hands full with this young church, and you can almost imagine that by the time Paul has gotten through the first 11 chapters of trying to correct all this misbehavior, he's probably shaking his head, wagging his finger, stomping his foot at them, and then he thinks, head, finger, foot. Hey, hey, that gives me an idea. I wonder, Paul thinks, if, if maybe with a bit of humor, as we know that humor is often used strategically to disarm defensiveness, in approaching a conflict. What if I used a humorous analogy about the body, all being necessary, all needing one another in order to complete a whole, healthy, functioning body, as an image about how they are each gifted individually by the Holy Spirit, but for the common good, the benefit of the whole community, not just for themselves alone. That might be a way to help them reconcile and move forward. And in this way, I think, Paul's words instruct us, too, 2,000 years later, that we should not just tolerate one another or even accept and welcome one another, though that Christian virtue has its place, but to recognize that we actually need one another. We need one another. We are dependent upon one another for our well-being, our individual and corporate health and well-being. That's a hard message to hear, honestly, to really digest because it's so countercultural today and maybe has been for a long time, especially in a culture where individualism and independence are such highly prized values and lifestyles, aren't they? Think about all the times in your own life when you have been wrestling with a challenge or an obstacle before you Perhaps your own mental or physical health has been in jeopardy, or you're caring for somebody who is wrestling with health issues. Perhaps you've lost a job or for some other reason are having financial struggles. Maybe you're caring for an aging parent or a newborn child. Maybe there's some other conflict in your life, uh, an estranged family member or uh, a divorce uh, that is an experience in your own life or a family member or some other challenge you're facing and what often happens people around you see that you're struggling and they say hey can I help I see that you're in need can I do something for you and what do we say no thanks I'm good I got it I got this it's okay I've got it oh I see that you've fallen down and broken your leg can I help you get to that no no I got it I got my smartphone right here, I'll call 911. I don't need any help, totally fine, got it. How often do we do that in our lives? It's such a small thing, but so indicative of our lifestyle, of our culture that drives us towards independence. I can manage my life on my own, I can succeed on my own, I can finish well on my own. It's so built in to so many elements of the culture around us. Uh, we experienced a, a little piece of this just this last spring, um, and I did ask her permission to share this story. Last May, I was out of town for a couple of days for a preaching conference. Miriam was home managing the household and the pets and everything else in our lives. And she got sick, really sick, unusually sick for her. Um, and one of those days, uh, a friend called and said, Hey, can I help? I understand you're under the weather. And her instinct was to say what? no thanks, I got it, I'm good, totally fine. I mean, I can't get out of bed, <laughs> but I'm totally fine. And, and instead, there was this still small voice in her that said, dude, someone's offering help, accept the help. And, and so she said to this friend, yeah, actually, there's some things I need from Target, along with the prescription. <laughs> Would you mind running to Target for me? And the friend did, and what a wonderful gift but also just what a hard and wonderful reminder that there's so much in our lives that we think we can manage or should manage on our own, our independence. And it turns out it's not just when we face a challenge that this is true, it's true for our whole lives, our holistic lives as well. We need each other, truly need each other all the time to be whole, to be healthy, and it turns out maybe even to live longer. I've referenced before, maybe a couple of times, the Harvard study. Now, I know that sounds funny to say, as if Harvard has only conducted one study. But it's true. If you look up the Harvard study online, this is the study that will come up. It's probably the longest longitudinal study of humans uh, in history. It started in the 1930s, where Harvard researchers recruited over 700 people and have followed them over the course of their entire lives, tracking every single possible metric uh, and demographic statistic you can imagine about their lives, trying to determine what it is that impacts quality, well-being, health, uh, just sort of our overall happiness and contentment in life. And here's what that report has um, conclusively determined. This is a a recent uh, summary, though there are summaries that have been written over several decades. Contrary to what you might think, they write, it's not career achievement, money, even exercise or healthy diet that are the determining factors for quality of life. The most consistent finding we've learned through 85 years of study is positive relationships with one another. Keep us happier, healthier, and also help us to live longer, period. It's our relationships that affect us. For example, the researchers write, imagine your response physically when you've had a positive encounter or conversation with someone, how it makes you feel, the endorphins that are triggered in that encounter, and also imagine when you have a conflict with another person, how you lose sleep over that disagreement or conflict. We can see how that plays a part. They conclude, to make sure your relationships are healthy and balanced, it's important to practice what they call social fitness. We tend to think that once we establish friendships or even our intimate relationships with partners that they take care of themselves, but our social life is a living system and it needs exercise. Social fitness requires taking stock of our relationships, being honest with ourselves about where we're devoting our time and whether we're tending to the connections that help us Thrive. We can't just take this stuff for granted in our lives, how important our relationships are with each other, even and especially in the body of Christ. I often think about these as, uh, in a similar way, social muscles that we're exercising. And we talk about this at home all the time. Miriam and I will get to the end of a week, we're tired, we've worked a lot of long days, uh, and we're tempted to just settle in on a Friday night. Uh, and have dinner, and just have a quiet evening at home. But then an invitation comes for us to visit with friends at somebody else's house, or out somewhere. And often, my first instinct is, oh, I'm exhausted. I just want to, like, be a hermit tonight. And then I think, and yet, isn't it time that I should exercise those social muscles? Got to exercise that in order to Continue nurturing those bonds. It's not something that I can take for granted So first things first the Harvard study shows us that those relationships with each other are Critical to the quality of our life even the length of our life people live longer when they have meaningful relationships So what is the context that we face? There is in the United States today an epidemic of loneliness and isolation Again, look up online epidemic of loneliness or epidemic of isolation. You'll find dozens and dozens of studies and reports. This one comes from the Columbia University School of Public Health. Loneliness has been reported before COVID in 61% of Americans over the age of 18 who said that they were lonely, as opposed to the 1970s when only 11% of people reported being lonely. So in 40 years, 40-some years, 50% more people are reporting being lonely. And it's not just older adults who live alone, it's actually young adults who report the highest levels of loneliness. They report a number of contributing factors to this, including changes in family structure, longer lives, a built environment that fosters independence, weakening of local institutions that strengthen social capital, and the ways the internet is used, which closes off from one another, even though we think we're connecting to one another on social media. They report that while feeling lonely at times is normal, that chronic loneliness adversely affects our health and well-being, physically, mentally, and I would argue that it also affects our spiritual well-being. There's an evidence that Uh, chronic loneliness leads to adverse mental health outcomes, increased rates of anxiety and depression, and it becomes a vicious cycle. If you're struggling with mental or physical illness, you often isolate from your community and become lonelier. That loneliness then further contributes to or exacerbates your mental or physical illness. And so you can see how these things work in a vicious cycle together. Not surprisingly, the reports nationally indicate that people who already live on the margins or who are marginalized for some reason, whether they live in poverty, whether they are communities of minorities, whether they are people who have disabilities, those tend to be the people who report even higher levels of loneliness, and therefore their mental and physical and I think spiritual health is also negatively impacted. And how do we solve this pandemic of loneliness? They actually instruct people to go through relational and social skill training, learning how to be connected to one another. That's something that we have to learn and practice together. They suggest structured activities together, animal-assisted therapy, which I appreciate, having a few support animals at home myself, and gathering in small groups. Imagine that. Because it turns out that It's not something that is necessarily just um, built in to our culture of independence. A third study, the third of three I'll mention today, comes from the University of Kansas in a new report published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships, probably not one that you have on your coffee table at home. Associate Professor of Communication Studies Jeffrey Hall found that it takes 50 hours of time with someone to move from a mere acquaintance to a casual friend. 50 hours, think about that. That's an hour a week for a year to move from an acquaintance to a casual friend. Another 90 hours, so 140 hours, to move from being a casual friend to uh, more of a friend status. And 200 total hours. That's an hour a week for four years with someone to move into what Hall describes as a close friendship. And people you spend time at work with don't count, he says. Though you can spend time outside of work creating that friendship, the time that you spend in the cubicle next to somebody doesn't necessarily count. Paul writes, you've got to put the time in. You can't snap your fingers and make a friend. Maintaining close relationships is, he's determined, the most important work we do in our lives. And how much more so in a community of faith? In addition to the friendships that we have outside of a community of faith. Because to be clear, I'm not trying to isolate us. This isn't a cult where we can only interact with one another. But we recognize there is an importance of our relationships with other people of faith as we support each other in that walk of faith. And of course we have relationships with wide circles of folks outside of this community too. So here's the recap in these three studies. Three of thousands that I could share. One, we need each other. Meaningful relationships dramatically change the quality and the length of our lives. Two, we live in a time where there is a pandemic of loneliness. And I saw many of you shaking your, nodding your heads because you know that yourself or in a loved one. And three, getting out of that pandemic of loneliness back towards the meaningful relationships that we need takes time. It doesn't come naturally or easily. Many of you know the experience of being on a church mission trip or at a church retreat and how deeply meaningful that experience is in part because you compress in a weekend or a week so many more hours than you have on a Sunday morning passing the peace or sipping coffee in Shep Hall. As important as that is, it's only a small part of the whole. This is in part the long commercial setting up small group ministries for Lent this year. We're giving all of you an opportunity. Some of you are already in a small group, and those small groups will participate in this program, uh, Encounters with Jesus, our theme for Lent. But others of you are invited to participate as well. On page 7 in your bulletin today, yes, you can pick it up if you want now, you'll notice there are a number of small groups that are just open for anybody to show up. A couple on Sundays, one in the morning after worship, one in the afternoon. A couple on Wednesdays, one in the morning, a couple in the evening. That are open for people to come and join. You can contact Miriam. Her email address is there to come and be a part of a small group. Just as an aside, we recognize that while rates of loneliness are, have historically been similar for men and women, in the last 20 years they've risen dramatically for men in particular. There's a whole other sermon I could preach and have preached about the challenges for men to make meaningful friendships in their lives in our culture today. Uh, But I'll just say that as an aside for the reason why I'm leading a small group on Wednesday mornings, uh, particularly for men who are working, knowing that that is a challenging demographic for folks to make meaningful communities. So that's why that one in particular is there. But lots that are open to anyone to participate in. And to be clear, these few hours spent in a small group over the six weeks of Lent are not in and of themselves going to be the way to form a deep friendship with somebody. But it is a model for us and a practice that we can continue to commit ourselves to. And at the same time, we'll discover in those six scripture lessons from John that scripture teaches us important ways, informs and inspires us about how to better connect with one another a community, because we know that that is such an important environment to create and invite people into. We'll also have a Mardi Gras party on Tuesday, February 21st. On March 3rd and 4th, we're also having an all-church retreat here at First Press with our scholar in residence, Dr. Anna Bowman uh, Bowden. And uh, all of that information is in the bulletin and online Strongly encourage you to participate if you're able in all of these opportunities. And no, none of them in and of themselves will be a solution to creating the kind of community that we need with one another, but there are steps that we can take along the way, just steps that we can use to exercise our social fitness, our social muscles. I kind of keep a refrain in the back of my mind whenever I'm making one of these small decisions about a part of a more important lifestyle, it's a step I can take for the friendships I make. A step I can take for the friendships I make. Try that with me. A step I can take for the friendships I make. Take those steps in your life. Last week, I concluded with a quote from uh, the wonderful Rachel Held Evans, Um, who shared so much uh, beautiful witness and testimony in her young life. Last week, I talked about how she wrestled with Scripture, running away from Scripture at a point in her life where she felt people were using it to abuse others rather than to lift up others. In a similar way, she had that experience with church itself, where she felt early church environments in her life were... um, hypocritical or abusive she left church and then finally found her way back to church and this is how she describes that journey she says what finally brought me back after years of running away wasn't the lattes or the skinny jeans she's referencing ways that some trendy churches try to market themselves to be more appealing to be fair we do have lattes Um, and they're great thank you to the weems for that ministry Though uh, you will not find me on Sunday morning in skinny jeans. Nobody wants to see that. But I digress. Rachel continues. Instead, it was the sacraments, baptism and communion. It was confession, preaching the word, anointing the sick. You know, these strange rituals and traditions that Christians have been practicing for 2,000 years. They are what make the church relevant, no matter the culture or the era. They don't need to be repackaged or rebranded. This is what I noticed, what caught my attention. She concludes, they just need to be practiced, offered, and explained in the context of a loving, authentic, and inclusive community. It's the experience of church, not as an individual, but as a community of faith, where we recognize that we need one another. We actually need one another to be whole, to be healthy, to be vibrant, to be who we are called to be, a loving, authentic, and inclusive community. It's not a coincidence, I think, that Paul concludes chapter 12, this discourse about how we need one another, the gifts that we all have that are given for the common good, by saying, I will still show you a more excellent way, and segues right into 1 Corinthians 13, which you probably know well, his famous poetic expression of the gift of love. Because as much as we are reminded that we are created and called to live in community, interdependent community with one another, we also know that it's hard. It's really hard to do. Like the Von Trapp children, Like the Corinthian church, we know the calling we are to aspire to, and we know how hard it is to get from here to there. So remember, church, as we strive to live out Christ's call to love and to be loved by one another, that faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. Amen.